All right, there is a, a fascinating story that takes place in Acts chapter 16. Sometime around 50 AD, the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he's in modern-day Turkey with a group of friends, uh, Silas. They pick up this young, dynamic leader named Timothy, and they're trying to go around to preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus, plant churches, and it says that they're having a hard time. They, they are, whatever they're trying to do, uh, nothing's working out, and at one point, they even say that they think maybe the Holy Spirit's hindering them from going into Asia. And so kind of at a loss one night, Paul goes to sleep, and he has a dream in the middle of the night. He has this vision, and there's this man on the seashore that looks awful like Macedonia and says, why don't you come over here, come over to Europe and preach the gospel. So Paul wakes up with this kind of epiphany and this idea, and he says, I know what we're going to do. We're going to cross the Aegean Sea, this famous Greek sea, and take this gospel over into Europe. So they do that and uh, cross over, uh, come into Europe, and they, they stop at this city called Philippi. And Philippi is uh, the leading city in uh, this region. Uh, it's famous for one of the most uh, uh, maybe popular political figures in history. It's named after uh, Philip, uh, King Philip, whose son uh, was Alexander the Great, maybe the greatest political figure in history. So this is kind of a famous a uh, famous city in this, in this region. Uh, there was a, a Roman civil war that was fought right outside of Philippi. And so now it is a Roman colony full of Roman citizens. And Paul comes into Philippi to share the gospel. And what Paul would do, oftentimes his strategy was he would find those who believe in God in the community and go to them uh, first with this, this gospel message. And uh, he, he, what, we, what we find in Philippi is that there's no synagogue there. They don't have enough Jewish people uh, to, to have that. So the people would go out and pray outside the city by the river. And the story picks up in Acts chapter 16, verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Atira, which is over in Turkey, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So apparently she's a Suns fan, so it sounds like a good character. A dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of the household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So this is like an amazing story. They run into this woman. Uh, she, she deals in purple, which means that she uh, deals with kind of wealthy people. And so she's probably well-resourced. She's a strong businesswoman. She may be a widow um, if she's kind of doing her own thing with her own business, but she's probably a pretty like, high-capacity person. So they've kind of like met this really influential person in the city, and they're kind of staying at her house, and this church is starting. Things are going well. Well, they go back to, to prayer, and they run into another woman. And this time, it's someone who's completely different than Lydia. Uh, the story tells us that they run into this girl that is actually a slave, and she's kind of possessed by this spirit that allows her to predict the future or be kind of like a fortune teller. And so the people that own this slave are making all of this money, and people would come from everywhere to have this young slave girl predict the future or tell their fortune. So they're getting rich off of it. When she sees Paul and his companions, this girl that can predict the future, tell fortunes, she starts saying, oh my goodness, 
These people are super important. They are servants of the God Most High, and they have a message that can bring about salvation. So, like, she can, she can tell fortune, and she's declaring this about Paul and his companions. And you think that would be a good thing, but it, it's interesting. Paul looks at her situation, and although she's, like, saying good things about him, he realizes, uh, you know, she, she's in this terrible situation. And what she's saying, it says that he's actually annoyed by the whole thing that's going down, and he casts this spirit out of this slave girl. Takes it out. So she no longer can, you know, tell the future. And so her slave, the slave owners find this out. They get upset. They're mad at Paul. They're mad at the companions. And starting in verse 19, it says, When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What happens is all these people are up in an uproar about it. You know, some of the, the, the fortunes that are coming from uh, the slave girl are gone. And so they drag Paul and his companions into the street. They beat them, they flog them, and they throw them into jail. So, like, the story changes for Paul pretty quickly. You know, he's hanging out with Lydia, probably in a very nice house, and all of a sudden now he's beaten and dragged into prison. And it says when he's in prison, he's praying, and his companions are singing hymns, and all the prisoners are hearing this message of Jesus, even in the midst of them being beat up, being flogged uh, in this dark jail. And the story goes that, that God, uh, you know, is with Paul in the midst of this. This earthquake comes. Uh, the chains are broken, the doors open up, Paul and his companions can leave. And the jailer, uh, who's kind of like overseeing them, who's been listening to them pray and sing hymns uh, all night, he, he finds out this earthquake comes, he checks to see like the gates are open, he's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. All the, the prisoners probably escaped, he's about to take his own life because he's in trouble. And it says in verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he realizes that they don't leave uh, the prison. And he's blown away. And he says, what must I do to be saved? They reply in verse 31, believe that the Lord Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all the household were baptized. And Jesus brought them, or and the jailer brought them to the house, set a meal before them, filled, and they were filled with joy because they, he had come to believe God, he and his whole household. And so then after that, you know, they, the, the, the church kind of in Philippi is formed. You have Lydia and her household. You've got this slave girl who is, has the, the, the spirit cast out of her. And then you have this jailer in his household. And I think what's, what's important when you think about this church in Philippi is that this church becomes one of Paul's favorite churches. It becomes one of the healthiest, most generous churches. Um, and, and, and Paul writes a letter to them later on in his life, and you just have this like, sense of, of this warmth, relational friendship he has with the church in Philippi. And the church of Philippi flourishes in the midst of a tense political situation. But I think what's interesting is when you think about the people involved in this church, they come from three different classes. They come from different nationalities. You have Lydia. You have Lydia, who is from Turkey. I don't know if you have that slide. Lydia's from Turkey and uh, deals with you know, the wealthy. She's from this kind of coastal city on the west side of uh, the, the Turkish coast. And so she's li literally like a cultural elite. 
you have this slave girl um, who, who doesn't have anything. She's probably Greek. She's probably like a part of the occult. She's probably coming from who knows what background. And then you have this jailer. The jailer's probably this, uh, this veteran uh, from, from the Roman legions. Um, he's probably like the salt of the earth, blue-collar, hardworking guy. He probably you know, wore like a red helmet that said, make Macedonia great again, right? Like, um, you have this, this just really bizarre group of diverse people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And they're in a place that is a politically tense location. And, and what we find is that in community, the church starts to flourish. Something happens with this group of people where they're united around Jesus instead of the way that the world defines them. It doesn't mean that everything is just harmony all the time, but it means that in the midst of their differences, they're able to, 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 to have Jesus transcend that to become a church. And we, we, we know that this church becomes successful. When Paul writes his letter in Philippians chapter 1, he says this. Uh, kind of writing to them, he says, Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct, I think, is key to why this church, even this diverse group of people, have success as a community following Jesus. This word conduct, the Greek word, we have this word polit you oh my, polit you oh my, is where we get the word politic. We get the word citizen from this, to behave as a citizen. So some translations would say in verse 27, whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. As citizens, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the series on politics And we want to look at kind of a language that we use to talk about politics through the lens of the gospel. And I love this line, through a manner worthy of the gospel. As gospel people, we engage in the political conversation different than how the world engages in the political conversation. We conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So everything is filtered through this lens of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, where all of this is headed. We are Jesus' people. We are citizens of heaven. That doesn't mean that we're not citizens of America, because we are, and that's important. But as citizens of America, we act through the lens of Jesus. Every single thing that we do, the gospel influences. Even politics, how we engage in this political conversation. And I think it's important, as we've talked, uh, the, the moment in America is tense right now. You've probably had conversations with people that have got heated or frustrating. You've probably had conversations with family where you've just shut down because you didn't know how to talk about it. And we, as a church, say this, that we have to give ourselves a language to talk about things that matter and are important in this moment in our country's history. And we need to give a language to, to, to communicate in ways Uh, that point people to Jesus. And when the church doesn't give the language, the culture does. And the way that the culture works politically is destructive and painful. As a church, we want to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here is, is what I think is important with this church in Philippi. Not only do they put this on display in the midst of their differences, pointing people to Jesus, 
It transforms them in a way that is compelling to the culture around them. At the end of this letter, when Paul is writing to the Philippians, he says, oh, by the way, the saints in the household of Caesar send their greetings. So we know that this message that started in Europe and Philippi has got to this place where it's gone all the way to the top in Rome, to the household of Caesar. Something was so compelling about this church's message. And the ways that the culture defines you, now things are, we are new people in Christ. And here's what I think that, that was, they're, they're not only displaying citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel, but gospel-shaped civility is a compelling witness. Here's kind of the main point for the day. Gospel-shaped civility is a compelling witness. And I think it's something that the world, especially our country, needs right now. Gospel-shaped civility. Conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, Richard Mao was the uh, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. A great place to go to seminary, by the way. Um, He wrote a book called Uncommon Decency. Uncommon decency, calling the church towards decency uh, with the way that we interact and engage politically. He talks about this with civility. He says, civility is how we treat one another in public. It's public politeness. It amounts to a set of norms that make up a code of public decency. In politics, civility shows itself in respect for disagreement and in granting others the right to express it. Civility shows itself when we acknowledge the best in our political opponents' line of thinking and the best in our political opponents themselves. Civility is mercy and forgiveness. It's a form of public grace, a form of public grace. Christians were known for how we love those who are different than us, how we love our enemies, how we love with those who we disagree with. Andy Stanley recently said this, and I think it's true. When it comes to like this election that's coming up, Your candidate will win or lose based on how America votes in November. But the church, the sacred community of disciples of Jesus, the church will win or lose based on our behavior between now and then. Because whatever happens, the church in our future, in our witness, in culture, the way that we love others, the way that we conduct our others, the way that we have influence in the lives of others, we will win or lose by how we love in the midst of a season where everybody's always angry. Gospel-shaped civility uh, calls for us to engage differently. The conversations that we have, we engage differently. Here's the first thing that I think it requires. It, it requires us to imitate Christ's humility. So after Paul says, says this in Philippians chapter 1, he says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. I think something that is completely lacking in the political conversation right now is humility. It's humility. It's, there's a lot of arrogance. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of anger. But the way of Jesus, having the same attitude as Jesus, who doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but comes down and he meets us on this level of our humanity. We are a people that are defined by our humility, being humble at heart, 
And there's, I don't know about you, but when I'm around people that you, there's this deep sense of authentic humility. I, I feel connected to them. I want to follow them. They have influence in my life. In the church, for us to have a prophetic voice, we have to have a, a, a spirit of imitating Christ's humility in everything that we do. Humility helps us separate a person's thinking from their dignity. As a church, we acknowledge that humans are made in the image of God. And not only are they made in the image of God, that in the midst of their brokenness, Jesus would die for them because Jesus loves humanity. We're able to acknowledge that even when we disagree with people. We're able to recognize and respect uh, humans made in the image of God out of our humility. Martin Luther King Jr., um, in the midst of uh, the Montgomery, uh, Alabama bus demonstrations, um, knew that the Supreme Court was going to come down with an order that would allow integration on buses. And so in the midst of kind of this heightened uh, situation of, or, or this tense situation in culture, he and, and some friends decided to, to write an integrated bus suggestions uh, for, for those who are going to be on buses together. And he says this, he says, place upon us all a tremendous responsibility of maintaining in face of what could be some unpleasantness, a calm and loving dignity befitting good citizens. In all things, observe ordination, ordination rules of courtesy and good behavior. Be quiet, but friendly, proud, but not arrogant, joyful, but not boisterous. Be loving enough to absorb evil and understanding enough to turn an enemy into a friend. These are some of the suggestions he had as these buses started to integrate the, the way of humility. Those that are different than you think different than you. Uh, it, what humility requires are acts of service and love. Galatians 5 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. When we ground ourselves in political engagement, we serve others with humility and love. This is what gives influence. This is the way of Jesus, imitating Christ's humility, conducting ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. The second thing is this, to, to commit to deeper relational connection with our neighbors, to commit to deeper relational connection. This is hard to do in this era of social distancing, right? But Philippians chapter 2 talks about this idea of unity. And of course, it's talking about the church because I think that we have to have this deep sense of connection with each other as the church. But having a deeper sense of connection with people who are different than us is absolutely essential. Howard Thurman, who uh, wrote a book called Jesus and the, the Disinherited, uh, kind of coined this phrase that, I, that he thinks that so much of our society we have hate, hatred towards each other. And, and there's a cause for that. It, there, there's a process that leads to that. And he says it always starts, hatred in our culture always starts with contact without fellowship, is kind of the, the phrase he coins. Contact without fellowship. It's this idea that we're connected with people, but we aren't being with people. And I think this is happening, especially in the last six months in our culture here in America, the idea that we have contact, but we don't have fellowship with people who are different than us. 
Thurman says that there's kind of like four stages of hatred. We have, we have contact without fellowship. And what that does is uh, we're confronted with one another, but not in the position to be with one another. We develop an understanding that is strikingly unsympathetic towards the other. We're close enough to observe them through that shallow contact, uh, and we develop an understanding of them that is hard, cold, minute, and deadly. And we form in our minds something that expresses itself in the active functioning of ill will towards the other. And then ill will becomes hatred walking the earth, according to, to Thurman. Hatred walking the earth. It's this process of when we're no longer connected, doing, doing life with them, seeking deep connection with them. It's like we, we have this, this contact with them, but there's no authentic relationship. And what happens in our minds for people that are different than us, we just start to, to move towards ill will, towards hatred, towards bitterness. This is why I think social media with political conversations is so dangerous. Social media is the ultimate contact without fellowship. This is why I think it's so difficult when, when we're not able to, to gather as a church because uh, even in a place like North Phoenix, when we come together at Desert City, there's all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, and it reminds us of our humanity. Contact without fellowship, we start to dehumanize our neighbor. We start to demonize our neighbor. We forget, again, that they're created in the image of God. And this is like something that's driving so many of our political conversations. Contact without fellowship. Beth Moore uh, you know, great, great teacher, love herself, Mar- one of Marcy's favorite teachers. Took me a while to, to start listening to her, and I was like, oh, she's actually like really good. Her daughter is named Melissa. Uh, she said this, um, when it comes to us, when we dehumanize, when we, when we demonize others, she says, it's interesting, especially as followers of Jesus, that nothing strikes me as more contrary to a life of grace than a preoccupation with discovering the worst about other people. Like, how much does that happen? When we play by the way of the world, the way that that culture defines how we should play politics, we are preoccupied with finding the worst things about the other people. But we are people of resurrection and redemption. We are people who acknowledge our brokenness and acknowledge the value that God would send his son to redeem us. Do we view others that way? That, that, That you are a child created in the image of God and you... Christ has died for you? Or do we spend all of our time preoccupied with picking out the worst in those that think differently than us? Chuck DeGroote uh, is a pastor from Michigan that came and spoke in Phoenix last year. I had a chance to meet him. He spoke to this group of pastors in downtown Phoenix and recently said this. Uh, he said, there, there will always be those who traffic in the discourse of demonization and division. But beyond this season, I'm hopeful that our longing might grow toward one another, even those we disagree with, to listen more deeply and faithfully, to cherish the beauty of connection over certainty. This longing for us as followers of Jesus to to deeply connect with people that we just feel like are different than us, even those we disagree with. We're defined by how we love those we disagree with. So we have imitating Christ's humility and seeking deeper relational connection. And again, this is something that it's so challenging because of the moment that we're in culturally being separated. As a church, let's not stop trying to connect with others. Then the third thing is this, to to, uh, conduct ourselves uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Gospel-shaped civility promotes truth 
in love in a culture of deception and rage. We promote truth and love in a culture of deception and rage. Here's what I mean by deception and rage. George Orwell uh, wrote a number of books on politics, but in politics in the English language, he says that he believed the English language was in decline, and it was in decline partially because of political causes. So language was uh, suffering because political speech and writing are largely a defense of the undefensible. Politics itself is a mass of lies, evasion, folly, and hatred, which is like, ooh, that's kind of intense. That's kind of dark, right? Um, but there's elements of that are, that are true. In politics, the, the languages that, that, that kind of like hijack different um, causes and hijack different uh, people and groups of people, um, the, the, the language that we, use is, that we use in politics, groups sometimes reduce like complicated matters into simplistic buzzwords to fit a narrative. And so this is, this is the way that politics talks, is we get these little buzzwords and phrases, and we take things that are full of nuance and complexity, and we simplify them through these buzzwords. And here's, here's one of the, like, this is kind of how language works. Um, so I lived in Texas for two years. I was a missionary to a foreign country. It was great. Uh, in Texas, when you think about, like, a phrase that, that, that Texans say a lot, what would be it? It would be, how about this? Don't mess with Texas. Have you ever heard of that before? Don't mess, don't mess with Texas. This is kind of a buzz phrase that, that Texans would say all the time. And do you know where that phrase originated? Don't mess with Texas actually came from sometime around the, like the mid to late 1980s. Uh, the, the state was looking at the amount of litter and trash on their highways. And they realized that most of the trash was caused by uh, men, males, 18 to 24 in age, that they would just you know, throw things out of their pickup truck and, and just trash things. So they decided, let's come up with a campaign to help uh, stop, being, stop littering in, in Texas, that just destroying like, our highways. So they came up with this phrase, don't mess with Texas, and they put it all up and down their highways to stop littering. Um, it was a phrase that just took off a life of its own. It became extremely popular. In the 1980s, it was like the, the equivalent of going viral this idea of don't mess with Texas. It originally started to stop you know, littering. Uh, now it's become like the calling of a state, right? Like don't mess with Texas. There was uh, the story of like the New York Mets baseball team went in to play Houston in the late 80s, right? kind of when this whole thing was viral and a bunch of them got in trouble at this nightclub and the next, the next day all the Astro fans had these signs up that said don't mess with Texas. Like, like I, you know, like the, the colleges there use it. Like if you go and I, my brother-in-law's from Texas, like we play, you know, sports together and he wins and it's like, you know, I haven't just taken on Morgan, I've taken on the whole state of Texas now. And um, like there's this, the, the, the way that that phrase develops, it, it means something, it has taken up this life of its own, it, it represents like Texas pride and, but it comes from, you know, this, this lingo of trying to stop littering, trying to get 18 to 24 year old men to stop littering. And, and you know, if they use the phrase like, you know, give a hoot, don't pollute, it probably wouldn't have been that popular. But, but something about this phrase captured an entire group of people's kind of like pride and identity. And the way that we use language even in politics is that there are these wordsmiths and political marketers that create these bug, buzzwords and taglines. And oftentimes we just like, they're, they're created to evoke emotion out of us. We don't always understand where these phrases or buzzwords originated, and yet we just kind of like lob them at each other in conversations. 
And what happens with so many of like the issues that we're facing, and this is why I'm a churchman, I think that the world is made better through the church. We need politics, but let's not forget, oftentimes issues, the extremes aren't the truth. The truth is found in this complex middle full of nuance. And so when we have conversations about how do we make our how do we renew culture? How do we, we provide um, uh, you know, freedom? How do we stop injustice? Oftentimes these phrases just kind of like package one side of the story, and really it's full of nuance. And as followers of Jesus, I, I, I want us to say, let's not get caught up in these buzz phrases that enrage and evoke emotions. Let's promote truth and love. Let's not easily be deceived. Let's not easily be hijacked by, by the ways that the culture talks about politics. As followers of Jesus, let's sit down with people and have conversations. And I would say the more important the issue uh, that we're addressing, the more we should stay away from just buzzwords. Promoting truth and love. Staying away from deception and rage of the culture. Gospel-centered people. We work in the way of the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The way that we work is personal, and it's, it's one-on-one, and it's relational. If we are to conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel, we are full of the humility of Christ. We seek relational connection with others, and we promote truth, not through enraging emotions, but through meeting people on a personal level. 1 Peter 3 says this, and I'll end with it. Starting in verse 9 through 12, it says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Let's be people that engage and conduct ourselves with civility in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. For gospel-centered people as we engage in this conversation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for stories like this. We're reminded, Lord, that the early church had this compelling uh, message. It was life-giving for people. And they were dealing with so many of the same types of kind of social tension that we deal with today. They're dealing with humans. Humans are broken. Human systems um, aren't perfect. And yet you have called us, Lord, to walk alongside you to bring about redemption and healing for the things that are broken. Lord, I just ask that Desert City, we would continue to, uh, to push back against culture when it comes to the language around politics. Lord, that we would be salt and light. Lord, that we would uh, be citizens of a kingdom that will never spoil or fade. That that would 
influence how we navigate being a citizen of the United States. Lord, we're so grateful for this country that we live in, that we, we get to celebrate the freedom to worship you in public. There's so many uh, wonderful things, Lord, that we take for granted all the time. Lord, I just ask that your church, both the small sea like Desert City and your church, uh, the big sea throughout the country, we would lead our country in the midst of uh, oftentimes toxic situations, toxic conversations. We wouldn't add to the noise of the culture, Lord, but we'd be set apart, holy, different. And because of that, more people would come to know you. More things that are broken would be repaired. More things that are sick would be healed. So we ask for courage and wisdom to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of your gospel. In your son's name we pray. Amen.